0: In this episode of Film Folly, I talk about the last film in the DCEU, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Also lots of Hollywood news, such as Charlize Theron and Daniel Craig in production for a new heist film, information about four new Star Wars movies, and news about Top Gun 3 in the works at Paramount. So let's get into it. To Film Folly, a biweekly podcast with a film club format choosing one featured film each episode to review and take a deep dive with meaningful insight and conversation. Film Folly is also your one-stop shop for news about your favorite films and TV shows to keep you informed with what's going on in Hollywood. I'm your host, Amanda Rose, and thank you so much for being here today. Just a little reminder to stay tuned at the end of the show because I'll be giving you the upcoming featured film for the next episode so you can follow along. I hope you all had a really great and safe New Year's and had a fun time. Um, We just stayed home for New Year's this year and didn't really do too much, which was okay with me. We went out last year, and so this year was just more low-key. However, right now, as of this recording, the weather has really taken a turn for the worst. So (laughs) we've gotten um, some ice and snow uh, and it's just been pretty crazy out. Luckily, there's not a lot of downed trees or anything like that or um, really large branches. But there is a lot of ice around and in my area and my my uh, family in the Eugene Springfield area of Oregon is experiencing some major ice with lots of trees coming down and like giant branches breaking off and it's, it's kind of scary. I know they have some power outages as well. So uh, I know everyone kind of uh, in several different places of the country is having some really bad weather right now. So I hope you all are staying warm and getting cozy. I decided to take the opportunity uh, today to uh, embrace coziness and uh, bake some cookies. <laughs> So uh, I had some cookies and tea today uh, to celebrate the snow and ice (laughs) that is falling down outside. And I did also have a little bit of time outside just to kind of enjoy it but it was it's really cold out there guys <laughs> I think it's supposed to be down to 16 degrees tonight which is pretty low for Oregon at least in the Willamette Valley so uh, yeah it's quite interesting and uh, so I hope everyone's enjoying the winter weather and uh, staying safe out there this week's featured film is... Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Yes, it is the last DCEU film. So I really wanted to celebrate that by covering it in this episode's featured film. It was my mom's birthday, and she wanted to go see Aquaman and The Lost Kingdom. So we all went together and went to go see the movie and went out to dinner afterwards. And we really had a good time. It was it was really fun to go to the theater and really see the film on the big screen and experience it that way, especially with all the great special effects. So it was a fun time. So the main cast for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, as you know, main character is Jason Momoa, who plays Aquaman as Arthur Curry. Patrick Wilson is Orm, who is Aquaman's half-brother and former king of Atlantis. Amber Heard as Mara, the queen of Atlantis and Aquaman's wife. Aya Abdul-Mateen II as Black Manta, the villain. And Randall Park as Dr. Stephen Shin, a marine biologist obsessed with finding Atlantis, who works for Black Manta after recruiting him in the first film. And here's a little synopsis, as always, of the film, so you get a little take on what it's about if you haven't already seen it. Now, there may be a little bit of spoilers in this. Um, But not too much uh, in this episode. So I think even if you haven't seen it, you'll still be able to see it after this episode of Film Folly and still really be able to enjoy it. After failing to defeat Aquaman the first time, Black Manta wields the power of the mythic Black Trident to unleash an ancient and malevolent force. Hoping to end his reign of terror, Aquaman forges an unlikely alliance with his brother Orm, the former king of Atlantis. Setting aside their differences, they join forces to protect the kingdom and save the world from inevitable destruction. Now, the critics from Rotten Tomatoes gave this a score of 35%, which I was surprised it was that low, but, eh, you know, sometimes critics get a little overly critical, and audiences gave it a score of 81%. So, they are definitely not in agreement, we can say, about the film, so... Usually if they're this far apart on a film, I'll usually end up falling someplace in the middle or uh, a little bit more on the audience side, primarily as far as my own assessment of the film goes. And after seeing it, that's definitely what I would say. I would give it probably about a 75%. The second Aquaman film is definitely more of a buddy comedy between Aquaman and his dethroned brother Orm. There was definitely more humor in the film than the first and Jason Momoa really brought more of himself to the role in the way that Aquaman dresses when he's on land And more of a carefree, nonchalant attitude, I would say. You can also see when Aquaman is on land, he has his hair in the infamous Jason Momoa scrunchie bun and riding a very similar motorcycle that Momoa has been seen riding in real life. So I thought that was pretty cool. You can definitely see Momoa's personality come through a little bit more in this film, which gives it a little bit more heart, in my opinion. The film is also about two brothers overcoming their differences for a greater purpose. And you get to see the growth in Orm, his brother, as the film moves along, which is definitely heartwarming to see. The comedy between the two brothers is really entertaining. You definitely get that brotherly vibe where Aquaman is kind of picking on Orm a little bit and teasing him a lot. So I thought that was really, really great. There's also some really good positive messages in here with the prominent themes about the importance of environmental responsibility, especially when it comes to our oceans, which I really liked in this It's a great message to promote. It really lends to the idea that in preserving our oceans, we help to promote the ecosystem of our planet for a cleaner and more sustained and healthy life for us all. It's a valuable message and reminder for sure. While there are a number of notable actors in this film, you really can't deny the leading man in particular. You feel Momoa's heart in this role and the importance of this character to him. Why else, in my opinion, would he put so much of himself into this? And that's why I feel even if they don't bring Momoa back as Aquaman, he was really made for this role and it would be very hard for me to see anyone else in it. There would definitely be a very high bar for the person filling the Aquaman shoes if they do recast for the new DC Universe that is being planned. During the production of the first Aquaman that was released in 2018, if you don't already know, Momoa pitched an idea for a sequel that he gave to Warner Brothers chairman and producer Peter Safran. Momoa and his production partner Brian Mendoza later wrote a 50-page treatment for the sequel, which Warner Bros. bought, but did not entirely follow. During the production of the second Aquaman film, there was a lot of talk with the director James Wan and producer Peter Safran, who also developed the Conjuring universe, that the second Aquaman would also focus on world building. Safran explained that he and Wan did not want to rush the sequel, and Warner Brothers had been supportive of that, which is why the film's release was scheduled for four years after the first film. He added that they were approaching the Aquaman franchise in a similar way to the Conjuring universe, with spinoffs like The Trench, exploring stories about the underwater kingdom. Saffron said Director Juan knew, quote, the architecture, the armory, the military, the look, the feel, the general vibe of each of the seven kingdoms, and wanted to explore them all in the future projects. Now, this idea seems to be in complete contrast to later reports once it was announced that James Gunn and Peter Safran were named co-heads of DC Studios and were planning on revamping the entire DC Universe with new film, television, and gaming. In my personal opinion, this tells me Juan and Safran went into the development and production of this second film with the idea of world-building and spin-offs for Aquaman, and that was probably their intention. But this idea was scrapped once the DC Universe was later planned to be rebooted with James Gunn and Saffron at the helm. I wonder how James Wan feels about this since he seemed to work closely with Saffron and put a lot of effort into the idea of Aquaman spin-offs previously. It seems like James Wan may have been left out, because as of now, according to Screen Rant, Wan does not have any locked plans with James Gunn and DC Studios for future projects. Now, on a side note about the future of Aquaman, in an Access Hollywood interview with Jason Momoa, he shared that he has ideas for a third film and hopes, if the second one does well, why wouldn't they make a third? Momoa goes on to say that there are lots of Spider-Mans and Batmans, why not continue the Aquaman saga by leaning into the family dynamic since we see Aquaman has a son in the second film. Momoa would like to see a third film where his character hands off the position of king to his son and continues with a new Aquaman in that fashion, more of a family transition. So I thought that was a really great idea. If you want to see the full interview with Jason Momoa talking about this, the link is in the episode description under the reference section. I personally like the idea, and I know James Gunn is really focused on recasting a lot of these superhero parts with much younger actors in order to have long-standing roles for continued DC universe building. This idea from Momoa really hands off the role in a much less agitating way for the diehard fans, where we have Momoa continuing his role, but eventually getting phased out once his character hands off the trident, so to speak, to his son for the next generation of Aquaman. This would be a much more gentle approach to the DC transition that James Gunn and Peter Safran are wanting to move forward with. In my opinion, it's a win-win scenario for them because fans don't have to be super pissed that Momoa got recast entirely, and they can retain that fan base because it's more of an evolution of the character as opposed to a full-on recast. But that's my opinion. What do you guys think about this idea? I think if it gets enough traction with fans... James Gunn and Peter Safran can't really deny the popularity of the idea, so it would be really interesting to see how audiences respond to Jason Momoa's idea. Now, as far as constructive criticism goes, while I really did enjoy this film, it's not without its faults. One of the criticisms of the first Aquaman was the lack of chemistry between Jason Momoa and Amber Heard. I am still feeling the lack of chemistry in the second film. However, this film focuses on the journey between Aquaman and his brother in order to overcome their issues with each other and work together for a greater purpose. So Amber Heard's character is not in this film as much at all, which in itself seems kind of awkward since the two main characters just had a child together and Mara's presence is more implied in some scenes and gives the feeling of her being around without actually being around. It kind of makes it painfully obvious that the drama surrounding Amber Heard and her legal battles must have played a major role in limiting her appearance on screen. However, as much as I hate recasting, I think it would have been wise to do so in this case, Because, as I already mentioned, there are several areas in the film where you would expect to see more of the Mara character. And that makes the film feel a little disjointed. I'm sure there were legalities with contracts that must have played a role in the decision not to recast Amber Heard. But for me, this is a factor nonetheless. And as far as the storyline goes, there's a lot of elements I like, as I mentioned at the top, but overall, as a superhero comic book film, there is some familiar territory that feels a little too much like every other superhero film. This may be because the villain I personally felt was a little weak. It's of a recycled villain there are some new elements of danger that's added to the villain in this film where he gets the black trident and other dark magical things happen that adds to the villain idea throughout the film But those are kind of my two criticism points within the film. I felt like the script could have been a little bit more creative in certain ways. Again, some recycled themes that just is a little too expected for a superhero film. But again, I want to reiterate, I'm happy I saw the film and I really wanted to support everyone involved. The special effects are also really amazing and I'm so happy that I saw it in the theater because you really get to be immersed into this underwater world and it's really fun. It's such a delight for the eyes and the senses even. So, uh, yes, I highly recommend seeing it in the theater if you haven't already. I also really wanted to support Jason Momoa because I'm a huge fan. And he took to Instagram where he announced that there was going to be a special showing of Aquaman in the Lost Kingdom for Maui wildlife survivors at no cost for three days during the premiere week. And I thought that was really super cool. So, I'm sure there was many people involved, not just Jason Momoa, you know, it takes a lot of people to be able to organize that. But uh, yeah, just a really nice, thoughtful thing to try and bring some levity to the the heavy situation that they have over there. So I hope that people were able to really enjoy the movie and escape for a little while with some entertainment. But as always, I really want to hear your thoughts about the film, and leave a comment on the episode posts on Facebook, Instagram, or X, and let me know what you think, and, and what you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, I'm always interested to hear what, what other audience members think, and I'd love to see your involvement and opinions. So moving on to my next segment, now regular listeners of the podcast will know I typically do a TV I'm watching now segment, but I wanted to change it up for this week a little bit and do something different since we are at the beginning of a new year. I'm going to bring you some special streaming information I think you might want to know for this year. And this information comes from a New York Times article entitled, What Your Favorite Streaming Service Will Cost You in 2024. So yeah, this is information I thought would be really beneficial for listeners of the podcast. You know, we all love consuming TV and film and everything like that. I'm sure we all have some kind of streamers. And like you, I'm also kind of happy and unhappy with some of the changes that have been going on with streaming services. And uh, I've, I've mentioned in previous podcast episodes that I think people are really Weighing uh, pros and cons of each streaming service because if you have each streaming service, they really do add up, and some people are considering just going back to cable uh, because it's it's just too much for people's budgets right now, and and I can definitely understand that. But yeah, here's some some information that comes from the New York Times, so you can watch out for 2024 and be informed what's going on with these streaming services. With one of the biggest changes for this uh, 2024 year is with Amazon Prime Video. If you were planning on watching the final season of, let's say, Jack Ryan or eight seasons of House without commercials on Amazon Prime this year, get ready to dig a little deeper into your pockets. Last September, Amazon announced it would soon add advertisements, and they announced that the changes would go into effect January 29th of 2024. Customers wanting to avoid the ads would have to pay an extra $2.99 a month. Less than a decade ago, the streaming era took over on the promise of letting users cut the cord from expensive cable bills and enjoy a blissful ad-free viewing experience. But, as we have entered 2024, Amazon isn't the only service bringing back ads or driving prices higher. Studios and streaming companies that make all this entertainment say they are struggling and that it's getting increasingly hard to attract new customers. The result is higher prices or plans that are cheaper but include ads. And, unfortunately, that's not all. This last fall, Netflix announced a price hike and said it would start clamping down on users who share their passwords with people outside of their household for free. To help you make a choice for the new year, here's what some of the main streaming services will cost and what they will offer. Now all prices are in US dollars and apply to US accounts. So keep that in mind if you're listening from another country other than the US. Now for Amazon Prime Video, as you know, the current price for an Amazon Prime membership is $14.99 a month or $139 per year. Prime Video by itself is $8.99 a month. For ad free viewing, as just discussed, Amazon will add $2.99 per month to your bill starting January 29th. So, next up, the changes with Apple TV Plus. Now, luckily, I don't think too many things are going to be changing with Apple TV Plus. A monthly subscription for the streaming service costs $9.99. Apple also offers three free months when you buy one of their devices, and a subscription can be shared with up to five people. And currently, so far, there are no ads, so I think they're probably one of the few that have not added ads to their service yet, but we'll see if there's any additional announcements later on in 2024 with them. We'll we'll see now disney plus for 7.99 a month subscribers get content with ads for 13.99 a month or 139.99 a year you can stream disney plus without ads and download content for when you're offline its offerings include as i'm sure you are already aware but for those who don't know it includes pixar and Disney movies as well as Star Wars and Marvel movies and TV shows, 34 seasons of The Simpsons, and about 7,500 episodes of old Disney-branded shows. Now for Max, formerly HBO Max, Warner Brothers Discovery unveiled this combined streaming service last April, rebranding the former HBO Max. An ad-free experience will cost you $15.99 a month, An unlimited ad-free version for $19.99 allows users to add more devices to the account as well as up to 100 downloads. For a $9.99 add-on per month, you can also watch live sports. Max offers the Harry Potter movies, classic HBO shows such as The Wire, The Sopranos, and Sex in the City, as well as newer releases such as Barbie. The streamer also ordered a Harry Potter TV series. And I think I reported on that in a couple episodes back of Film Folly. So uh, that was big news for a little bit. Harry Potter TV series on Max That should be uh, perking up some ears for a lot of fans. Now for Hulu, for $17.99 a month, you can watch Hulu's vast catalog. Titles include New Girl, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and Fargo, without ads for $17.99. If you're willing to sit through commercials, it's $7.99 a month. Hulu also offers the option of adding live television to your plan, as well as content from other streaming services such as Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, although ESPN Plus does come with ads, so keep that in mind. Those options range from $75.99 to $89.99 a month, so... getting a little bit more spendier but you know you do get more content live tv that is kind of a cool feature of Hulu so I was considering Hulu for a period of time getting their live tv and then maybe doing away but then I was kind of weighing you know well I still have to go through Comcast and get my internet through them and We don't have cable through uh, Comcast, at least not right now, but we have in the past and it was just getting too expensive. So we just have streaming services along with our Comcast slash Xfinity internet, which comes with free Peacock, which is nice for us. So, but that's only if you get one of their highest speed internets, then you can get Peacock for free. But otherwise you have to pay, you know, of course, a monthly fee for Peacock. Which, speaking of Peacock, the premium subscription for NBC Universal streaming service will cost you $5.99 a month and includes original content, films, live sporting events, and more. A Premium Plus subscription is priced at $11.99 a month and offers mostly, mostly, no ads, as well as the ability to download content. Some of the programs you can watch is Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine Nine, Downton Abbey, and Everybody Loves Raymond, as well as Bravo content like the Real Housewives franchise. I will say that Netflix does currently offer also Downton Abbey, so for you Downton Abbey fans. Uh, next up, Netflix. Uh, raise your hand if you remember getting DVDs from Netflix in the mail in the early 2000s. Um, hand raised. In 2010, Netflix started selling its streaming service for $8 a month and offered one DVD at a time for an additional $2. Netflix now offers a $6.99 per month subscription, which is ad-supported. A standard plan without ads is $15.49 a month. For access to more devices, the cost goes up to $22.99 a month. Adding additional people that aren't included in your subscription will cost you an additional $7.99 per person per month. I'm slowing down there on purpose because if you want to add more people, you have to pay $7.99 per person per month instead of being able to share <laughs> your password and uh, share accounts. So yeah, that's they're definitely cracking down. It does say here Netflix mailed its last DVD in September of last year. So that's kind of sad. (laughs) I'm kind of old school. I guess I I do kind of miss the days of VHS and DVD rentals. (laughs) And last but not least, Paramount+. Plus. In 2021, CBS rebranded its streaming platform, which it heralded as a big day, a new day, a new beginning. Side-eye. That announcement came with promise of a Frasier reboot and a revival of the animated series Rugrats. A lot of other Paramount content can be found elsewhere. The company sold the rights to the South Park library to HBO Max, And series like Jack Ryan, produced by Paramount, have gone to Amazon. Paramount Plus Essential will cost you $5.99 a month or $59.99 a year and includes limited commercial interruptions. And includes limited commercial interruptions. Hmm. The service also offers a bundle together with Showtime in a plan that costs $11.99 a month or $119.99 a year. In my mind, that seems a little bit of a better plan because you're getting two for the price of one in my mind, Showtime and Paramount Plus, if you do the $11.99, but that's just my opinion. You know, everyone choose what you want and what works best for you. But anyway, so that kind of wraps up my uh, segment here on what your streaming service will cost you for 2024. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this special little segment. Uh, Next episode, I will be going back to the TV I'm watching now, but I wanted to include that for you so you have something to think about for 2024 and things to consider uh, for your streaming pleasure. And now it's time for Hollywood News. hollywood news segment i think i have some juicy details for you this week i'm really into the articles that i found for you guys so i hope you enjoy it the first one here is from deadline and it's entitled apple original films has prevailed in a bidding war for two for the money a heist thriller package to star academy award winner Charlize Theron, and former Bond franchise star Daniel Craig, which has the Fast and the Furious franchises Justin Lin aboard to direct and produce. In the film based on an original idea by Lin and his Fast X co-writer Dan Mizzou, Theron and Craig will play career thieves, whose relationship spans the course of three big jobs, the film is being developed by Lynn's Perfect Storm Entertainment, Charlize Theron's Denver and Delilah Banner, and Jeff Kirschbaum and Joe Roth's RK Films, with Apple Studios serving as the studio. Most recently seen in Netflix's fantasy pick The School for Good and Evil, Marvel's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and F9 The Fast Saga, in addition to the aforementioned 10th installment of the Fast and Furious franchise, Theron also stars in and produces The Old Guard 2, Netflix's forthcoming sequel to her hit 2020 action film. After ending his run as James Bond with No Time to Die, Daniel Craig has been seen reprising his role as Detective Benoit Blanc in Glass Onion, Ryan Johnson's Oscar nominated sequel to the acclaimed Netflix. Who Done It? Knives Out. In addition to a threequel in the franchise, he'll next be seen starring opposite Jason Schwartzman, Leslie Manville, and Drew Starkey in the adaptation of William S. Burroughs' *Queer*. So yeah, overall, we don't have a lot of information. Really, the most information is the headline in this. Among Charlize Theron and Daniel Craig's many projects, they are in development for this new heist film called Two for the Money. So I think the two of them are going to be a really great duo. I'm really interested to see their chemistry on screen and how uh, you know good it's going to be. You know, sometimes... You see two actors and you would expect them to have really good chemistry. And then, you know, they end up not. But um, these two are pretty amazing professionals. So, you know, who doesn't love a heist film? I personally feel like these days the heist film genre has been done a lot. So I'm hoping that they will be developing something a little bit different. Because I could see this ending up being a little too... Routine for a heist film, like they need to have a lot of nuance. I'd love to see some wittiness, you know. And usually heist films do have a lot of wittiness, you know. I'm I'm thinking Ocean's Eleven and and so on and so forth. But the storyline really has to be developed well in order for audiences to be interested because they've seen heist films before. They need something new. They need something interesting. So. Um, they need something that might be a little bit different take, and uh, I'm hoping that this will be it, especially since they have two A list actors here. It would be a shame to have two A list actors and then not give you something really, really great. So, as with most films, the script needs to be good. <laughs> Okay, for my next piece of news here, and this comes to you from Nerdist, and it's entitled, Four New Star Wars Movies Announced, Including Daisy Ridley's Return as Rey. All right, buckle up, all you Star Wars fans. This is news I'm sure you're going to get all giddy over. (laughs) Now, I enjoy me some Star Wars, don't get me wrong, but I am not a... um, i'm not an obsessed fan i go to enjoy them but i'm i'm not one of those fans who (laughs) who know every detail about every character within the star wars universe so i just go to have a good time and, and really that's about it so the article uh says after many false starts and canceled projects star wars is finally ready to return to theaters Lucasfilm announced three new upcoming standalone movies during the opening of Star Wars Celebration in 2023. These new Star Wars movies include a story about the founding of the Jedi, a movie that will serve as finale to this era of interconnected Disney Plus shows, and the return of Daisy Ridley's Rey. Additionally, this month, January 2024, Lucasfilm also announced a fourth new movie was heading to theaters The Mandalorian and Grogu, a big screen adventure starring our favorite Disney Plus duo. While Lucasfilm shared few official details about the films, the little they tell us does say a lot. And here's what we know about these new Star Wars movies so far. James Mangold's new Star Wars movie tells the story of The Force. It's set... Tens of thousands of years earlier than anything we've ever seen on screen before. That might mean we'll meet the figure known as Prime Jedi. That's the person who founded The Order on Octu 2, sometime around 25,000 years before the events of A New Hope. Fans already know Octu 2 well. They first saw it in The Last Jedi when it served as Luke Skywalker's hideaway. Also shared, James Mangold will take audiences deep into the past, telling the tale of the first Jedi to wield the Force and harness it as liberating power in an era of chaos and oppression. James Mangold's new Star Wars movie connects with Ray's new appearance. Kennedy also recently shared that this movie will help inform the new Star Wars movie featuring the return of Rey. She noted to Total Film, quote, I think it's a really nice compliment to what we're doing with moving into the future with Rey and then understanding a bit more of where this all came from. She explains, because it will be at the heart of creating the new Jedi Order. So to get a real sense of where that might have began with the Dawn of the Jedi could be pretty cool, end quote. According to a new official Star Wars era list revealed by Lucasfilms, this movie will most likely take place in the Dawn of the Jedi era, but could even take place earlier than that. Dave Maloney's film will bring together many current Disney Plus series. The next new Star Wars movie will come from franchise veteran Dave Filoni. His film will focus on the New Republic and close out the interconnected stories told in The Mandalorian, the book of Boba Fett, Ahsoka, and other Disney Plus series. That's huge news for both the television and movie side of Lucasfilm. When we get a release date for Filoni's film, we'll know just how many more seasons of The Mandalorian we might see. Clearly, there's already an end in sight to Dindoran and Grogu's story. Although we suppose they could continue on beyond a cumulative movie, a release further shares Dave Filoni will orchestrate the escalating war between the Imperial Remnant and the fledgling New Republic. The third and final new Star Wars movie announced will focus on the future. Obid Shanoi's movie will take place after the rise of Skywalker. It will mark the return of Daisy Ridley as Rey. Set 15 years after the ultimate defeat of the Sith, she will be trying to build a new Jedi order. Hopefully, that goes a lot better than her mentor Luke Skywalker's attempts. According to the new list of Star Wars eras, it seems like this movie will take place in the new Jedi Order era. Speaking to Empire, Kennedy added, quote, The First Order has fallen. The Jedi are in chaos. There's even a question of how many exist anymore. And Rey's building the new Jedi Order. Based on the text that she was given and that Luke imparted on her. She also offers... Ray has made a promise to Luke, and that's really the core of where we're going and what the story will be. And I think it offers just tremendous opportunity to introduce new characters and start with something fresh, because we culminated with what George Lucas was creating, and now we take all of that and move it to the next chapter, end quote. Recently, Daisy Ridley herself gave her first comments on her new Star Wars movie. While her sentiments remain vague, she noted to Collider, quote, I'm very excited. The story is really cool. I'm waiting to read a script because obviously I don't have any other updates. It's not what I expected, but I'm very excited. And she additionally told The Hollywood Reporter, I'm genuinely really excited about the next Star Wars movie. I haven't read anything, but I know the story. It's really worth telling, worth exploring, and I think people will be excited. End quote. Now, a release date for Ray's new Star Wars movie. There is now a, a reported filming date in play for Ray's upcoming Star Wars film. According to ProductionList.com, which tracks production updates for the Film and Television Industry Alliance, the Ray movie will start shooting on April 7th of 2024 in London. Hopefully that means we will get casting news soon. In addition to joining Dave Filoni's big group Star Wars movie, The Mandalorian and Grogu will also star in a new Star Wars movie of their own aptly titled The Mandalorian and Grogu. Few details are known about it for now but it will go into production in 2024 and it is set to be directed by Jon Favreau. So that's all really exciting. A lot of in-depth news there for the Star Wars films that are set to be released. *Ray's* Star Wars film should be filming this year sometime in the spring it sounds like. So A lot of movement in 2024 when it comes to Star Wars films, so uh, that is something on the horizon and very exciting. The last piece of news I have for you today, it comes from Variety, and I think a lot of people will be very happy since the second one did so well. It's entitled Top Gun 3 in the Works at Paramount. Tom Cruise may be headed back to the danger zone. Paramount has tapped Top Gun Maverick co-writer Aaron Kruger to work on a script for a sequel to the action blockbuster, according to a knowledgeable insider. The studio is also hoping that Top Gun Maverick director Joseph Kosinski will get back into the cockpit for another installment in the series, which would potentially see Cruz's younger co-star Miles Tiller and Glenn Powell return for more high-altitude excitement. Apparently, discussions about the new script began last year. There are still a few hurdles to cross, with Cruz and company needing to sign off on the final version. A spokesperson for Paramount declined to comment. The news, which was first reported by Puck, Comes days after Cruz announced that he had signed a non exclusive deal to develop franchises and original movies for Warner Brothers, the studio where he made Interview with the Vampire, Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, and Edge of Tomorrow. That pact will allow Cruz to work for other companies like Paramount and Universal, where he's working on a pricey film that will shoot at the International Space Station. Top Gun Maverick was a huge hit for Paramount, which tried for decades to find a way to get Cruise back in aviators. The film was nominated for the Oscar for Best Picture and grossed nearly $1.5 billion, making it the most popular film of Cruise's career. Tom Cruise also guides the Mission Impossible franchise at Paramount. He's currently working on the eighth installment in the Spy Series. That's going to do it for this week, friends. Thank you all very much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. That would really help the podcast reach more people. I'm an independent podcaster, and your support really means a lot. If you leave a five-star written review, I'll give you a shout-out on the show. You can follow and comment about the podcast and anything that's covered in the show on Instagram and Facebook at Film Folly Podcast or on X at Film Folly Pod. Also, the email for the show is FilmFollyPodcast at gmail.com. So if you'd like to get in touch with me that way, feel free to do so. For the featured film in the next upcoming episode of Film Folly, I'll be talking about the film Living. A story of an ordinary man reduced by years of oppressive office routine to a shadow of existence, who, at the 11th hour, makes a supreme effort to turn his dull life into something wonderful. This film should have gotten way more recognition, in my opinion, so it'll be fun to chat with you guys about. You can run it on several platforms right now, but it's currently available on Netflix. And remember, it's called Living. So enjoy that for the next episode of Film Folly. And I'll leave you for now, friends. Take care.